Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. In this week's episode of Babel, John talks with Ariane Tabatabai about Iran's COVID-19 response. Then, John, Will, and I discuss how Iran's response to the COVID crisis is affecting its regional standing. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Ariane Tabatabai is a Middle East fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Washington, D.C. Ari, welcome to Babel. Yeah, thanks for having me again, John. As we think about the COVID-19 crisis in Iran, is this something the Iranians were relatively prepared for? Did they have a health system that could deal with it? Were they ready for a pandemic like this? Absolutely not. Uh, It's actually important, first of all, to take a step back and talk a little bit about the Iranian health system more generally. It is actually typically seen as one of the better systems in the Middle East. Um, You do have a number of Uh, quite advanced hospitals. You have doctors who are U.S. trained. And Iran has really been trying to present itself as a hub for medical tourism in in the region and has actually gotten quite a bit of traction on, on that front. People from the Gulf, from other parts of the region do tend to go to Iran to get treatment, to get, you know, surgery of all kinds. And so it was surprising to see just how unprepared Iran was for this global pandemic. Uh, so the, the main challenge doesn't seem to be on the medical front. It seems to be with the fact that the Iranian government just didn't take it very seriously. When it became clear that there was a pandemic that was going around, initially the main epicenter within Iran was the holy city of Qom, where you have the seminary, there's a lot of travel that takes place. People, you know, Shias, other Muslims from all over the world go there to get trained. And when the first cases began to emerge there, there was a call for the government to shut down uh, the city of Qom to kind of forbid travel there and and to kind of try to contain it there. And that would have political and religious consequences as well. Absolutely. And that's precisely why they didn't do that, uh, not in a timely manner. And you also had a lot of disinformation uh, that played into it. So you had this kind of initial wave of people saying, uh, listen, we don't need to shut down the holy sites and the uh, mausoleums because you have the silver that kind of, you know, people can go and touch the silver uh, on the graves because it kind of, you know, it purifies, right? And there was that story of the, the person who was licking some of the holy sites as well. Yes, that's right. And that was, you know, an example of one of those hardliners who was saying, uh, look, I can even lick it and nothing will happen to me. It was sort of, you know, just kind of pushback against what the public health officials were saying. Uh, so they, they really very much downplayed the threats initially. Um, they did not respond to it in a timely manner, in an efficient manner. And the result is that Iran has become one of the main epicenters for, for the disease. Has that created any sort of internal political backlash, any, any consequences in, in the way the public relates to the government? So it's been interesting because the COVID-19 spread in Iran has actually, uh, I would say, uh, exacerbated internal tensions within the system and then uh, between the system and the population. 
Uh, and, you know, none of this is particularly new, right? There, just in November, you'll recall there were uh, protests that were taking place because of the regime's incompetence and mismanagement and corruption. Uh, so th- none of this is particularly new. But I think this is just another episode, another example of just how poorly prepared the system is for big crises and challenges. And how are, how are Iranians expressing their distrust of the government now? It's no longer necessarily in the public realm uh, as it was in November. You're not seeing mass protests in part because, you know, uh, part of the response to COVID-19 is to not go out and, and be in, in big crowds. So you're not seeing a whole lot of that going on. Uh, but certainly people are taken to social media in even traditional media in Iran. There's been a lot of questioning of what's happening internally. And you have this division between the government, so the Rouhani-led government, and the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, the Rouhani government, of course, is sort of the face of the response to COVID-19. It's been criticized for its poor management of, of the whole situation. And meanwhile, the guards have tried to present themselves as sort of the guardians of public health, as the faces of the proper way to, to fight against the, this disease and have, you know, have very much publicized their members coming out and spraying the streets, uh, disinfecting public places, uh, and have tried to really present themselves as the sort of competent counterpoint to uh, the, the Rouhani government. And how's the public reacting to that? It's really hard to say right now. So for starters, we know that there is a deep distrust of the IRGC as an institution. Uh, They are seen as the sort of arm of repression. On the other hand, the IRGC has tried to kind of rehabilitated its image over the years. Uh, it has tried to present itself as sort of the uh, the competent uh, body that is able to step in when the civilian-led government is unable to do so. And in some places, it's had some successes. Uh, you'll recall in 2014, 2015, Soleimani and, and some of his men were trying to present themselves as sort of you know, the the people standing between ISIS and Iran, and that had some success. Uh, I think it's too early right now to tell whether this will be the case with the COVID-19 efforts or whether it'll just be another effort in vain. Do you see that as an effort by the religious part of the establishment, the part of the establishments that's under Ayatollah Khamenei? Is that one of the efforts to just put a nail in the coffin of Rouhani as he ends his presidential term this year and and try to get a civilian leader that's more pliable? Or is there something else going on? I think that's certainly a big part of the story. Uh, Yeah, Rouhani has one more year left. And, uh, you know, so far, he doesn't have a whole lot to show for his seven-year tenure. He has served two terms. The chief sort of uh, foreign policy achievement that he had was the JCPOA, which is no longer something he can point to as a success. And the economy is in shambles. There's been growing internal uh, discontent. uh, And none of the social and domestic sort of promises he had made have materialized. So if the IRGC and the kind of more hardline part of the establishment is able to deny him a win in terms of this, you know, managing this public health crisis, then uh, yeah, I mean, it would be a nail in, in his coffin. He's not running again in, uh, in 2021. He is not allowed to under the Iranian constitution, but no one from his block, none of the sort of so-called moderates or um, pragmatists would be able to really run on a platform that points to any kind of success. And I think that is certainly something that uh, the IRGC is trying to deny Rouhani. 
And there were some people who thought that Rouhani would try to angle his way to be considered to be the next supreme leader after Khamenei dies. That seems much less likely now than it might have even six months ago. You know, yeah, I think that's right. Um, but it, it's also, it very much depends on when Khamenei dies and what happens next, right? If you have, for example, a hardliner, say a Saeed Jalili, who would be known to Americans who have fo- followed the negotiations with Iran in the past as a, very much a hardliner who kind of was stalling uh, any progress on, on the nuclear negotiations. If he wins or someone like him ends up winning the presidency and ends up having a disastrous kind of tenure uh, and Khamenei somehow holds and, you know, you have another few years of the moderates being outside of the public view, perhaps you'd have a chance again. Uh, but certainly if Khamenei dies in the next couple of years with the track record that, that the moderates have to show right now, it, that would not necessarily be, the, you know, he's not going to have a chance. Do you see the way the crisis has played out in Iran affecting the government's worldview, its longer-term strategies? Does this prompt any rethinking of of Iran's place in the world and how it how it secures itself? One of the interesting narratives that has uh, very much been pushed by IRGC outlets, by hardline media and affiliates um, in, in the press is that, you know, the sanctions are the main reason why Iran is unable to deal with COVID-19. And yes, sanctions are a piece of that, but there, it's not the full story again. The regime's own corruption, its own mismanagement, uh, the downplaying of the disease, uh, the disinformation around it are all very much uh, the bigger part of this this picture. But what the hardliners, what the IRGC are trying to point to is that the West is not just unreliable as a partner. It's also just plain obstructionist. It is trying to uh, kind of leverage, weaponize perhaps this uh, pandemic to bring about the collapse of the regime. And it doesn't mind that, you know, a number of Iranians are, are dying in the process. So it's very much trying to highlight the, the role of the United States, of Europe in this. And it's been interesting, too, on the flip side, uh, to see that they've been pushing these kind of this messaging around Shia militias, Iraqi Shia militias and others being very helpful in uh, the fight against the the, 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 the pandemic. Uh, for example, just I think about a week ago or so, you had the Tasneem News, which is this media outlet linked to the IRGC intelligence. Uh, they were pushing this narrative that you had Iraqi Shias, uh, per- presumably members of the some of the Shia militias in, in Iraq, who were studying in in Qom, and they were there helping uh, people uh, in this time of need. And the the sort of bottom line being, look, you know, you can count on our Shia brothers in the region to come in and lend a hand when the West is basically exacerbating this this problem. If you had to project forward. Would you say that this pandemic is likely to be a blip or that it's likely to mark a a point of departure for the future of of the Islamic Republic? You know, I I certainly think it is yet another episode, um, along with the shooting down of the Ukrainian airliner earlier in the year uh, when Iran was responding to Soleimani's death, uh, when it, you know, ended up sort of downing this airliner and killing 160 plus civilians. I think it's just another example that kind of highlights the degree to which the regime has been incompetent um, in managing 
crises. But in terms of it actually bringing about the downfall of the regime, which is something that some folks have projected, I don't see that happening. I, I think the regime is, has shown, the IRGC specifically has shown a lot of willingness and ability to control the situation. Yes, you have growing discontent. Yes, people are upset and they see very clearly that they, they are governed by people who are uh, completely incompetent. But does that mean that, you know, they're going to be coming out in the streets and, and masses and, and actually successfully toppling the regime? Uh, there is no indication uh, that that's that's about to happen. And then, of course, the problem is what happens afterwards anyway. That's exactly right. And, you know, the, the question, too, to me, from a U.S. policy making perspective is, uh, even if that were the case, say in the next two months, the regime collapsed and we still have this global pandemic, is that even a desirable outcome, you know, without necessarily having a viable alternative uh, that is able to step in and step in immediately and do so in a way that kind of makes sure that public health crisis is dealt with and so on and so forth. Those are all big questions, I think, that we need to be asking on the U.S. side. But I certainly don't think that we are seeing a whole lot of evidence that the regime is on its last legs as, you know, some within the administration and certainly outside of the administration seem to be thinking. Arjan Tabatabai, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next up, John, Will, and I talk about how Iran's response to COVID-19 is affecting its relations with its regional neighbors. So within the past year, we've seen protests in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, and much of it has been directed at Iran and Iranian proxies. There are also several other high-profile events, like the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and the accidental downing of the Ukrainian airliner. Has the new criticisms about how Iran is handling the COVID crisis caused Iran to pull back at all from the region? Perhaps, strangely, not really. The Iranians are pursuing the same strategies they have. But also, perhaps even more strangely, the Iranians haven't really paid a price for not only being the, the country with the, the weakest response in the region, but also the country that was the mode of contagion for so many neighbors that have now have to deal with their own COVID-19 crises? So I think it's probably worth thinking about how Iran has responded during previous times when it has been under incredible pressure. So when it was facing increasing pressure as a result of the economic sanctions, we might have expected it to focus more on domestic issues and to pull back from its support and its funding for its proxies in the Middle East. But that wasn't the case as Iran has undergone the pressure of having to deal with, with COVID-19, it still hasn't pulled back. Um, just last month, there was the attack on the U.S. base to the north of Baghdad, which resulted in two U.S. casualties and one Brit uh, was killed as well. And then U.S. officials have said in, in reports that they're increasingly concerned that Iran and its proxies are planning larger scale attacks against American forces in Iraq. Uh, so I would say it's certainly not pulling back. And it feels like the Iranians really have a limited playbook. And part of the limited playbook is the proxies are a affordable and deniable instrument of Iranian national power. Now, one of the interesting things is, is that Iranian officials have continued to travel throughout the region in a region where people are really concerned about travel, uh, really concerned about the actions of Iranian proxies. Iranian officials continue to be met at senior levels because countries can't figure out what to do 
with the Iranians except engage. Uh, I think in some ways it's it's in contrast to American policy where the U.S. has stopped engaging with the Iranians in most respects, but regional countries just don't feel they have that that option. Where is that happening? Is that happening in Lebanon, in the Gulf? You see it happening in Lebanon. You see it happening in Iraq. The Emiratis are reaching out to the Iranians and trying to help on COVID-19. The Emirates has a very large and expensive COVID-19 problem, surely exacerbated, if not created, by the large number of Iranians who go back and forth. And, and rather than blame the Iranians, rather than quarantine Iran, the Emiratis are saying, look, these people are going to be our neighbors for thousands of years into the future. We have to find a way to live with Iran. When we're talking about high-level visits of Iranian officials, it's probably important to remember as well just how many high-ranking officials in Iran have suffered from COVID-19. I mean, we're talking two vice presidents, um, a huge number of members of parliament, I think as many as 10%. So the, the fact that these high-level officials keep going, I think certainly is sending a message that it's business as usual and trying to downplay the risks involved. Um, but kind of interesting then, I think that some of Iran's proxies sort of feel that they perhaps have to continue to, to, to allow movement and, and have to continue to put on this facade of business as usual. In Lebanon, I think there were flights from Iran that continued to come into Beirut three weeks after the first case of COVID-19 was detected in, in Lebanon. I have friends who were furious about that, who were saying kind of this is absolutely outrageous that these flights continue to come in knowing uh, what a risk that, that poses. So I think there certainly is a feeling that there's the, there's the need to depict this as business as usual. What about Iranian proxies? Are people in Lebanon directing that same level of anger at Hezbollah or other parties? Not necessarily. I mean, I think that so far Hezbollah has has a difficult balance to strike because it often does best when it's trying to depict itself as an alternative to the Lebanese state and uh, stepping in when the Lebanese state fails to deliver for its people. But in this instance, there might be some risks with that. I think Hezbollah has certainly said it's got medical facilities prepared and whatnot to help out. But if it ends up doing too much, then it could be seen later on as sort of owning the response. Um, and especially given its link with with Iran, I, I do think that that's a concern for, for Hezbollah, that they could end up not gaining the credit of this, but actually being the target of, of uh, Lebanese frustrations. But it's interesting that at a time when the region is struggling under lockdowns, I mean, economically and socially, the glare hasn't turned to Iran that there aren't a lot of signs of people blaming the Iranians for inflicting this on the region. Whether that's sustainable, as Will suggests, or whether it's going to change, I think it's really important. At this point, the Iranians haven't borne the, the burden that you might say the Iranians deserve uh, for having what is by far the worst outbreak in the Middle East. What would be some of the signs that people are starting to turn their glare onto Iran? Well, the obvious first step is that people on social media and in the press are blaming the Iranians. And, and it's interesting that that hasn't happened as much as one might think. There are more and more ways for people to express opposition. There are more and more ways for governments to manufacture opposition. And it's notable that the Iranians haven't come over under a harsh glare quite yet. 
Having said that, I do think there's the possibility that these frustrations burst out into the open once some of the restrictions are lifted. I mean, clearly it's difficult or impossible for most people in the region to partake in protests at the moment, including in Iran. And, uh, and, and so I think it will be interesting to watch when the lockdowns do start being lifted, um, will, will we see more public displays of anger against Iran? I mean, in places like Syria, there's clearly a, a huge number of Iranians. And right from the start, I think, when, when this was spreading in Iran, a lot of Syria watchers were just thinking of it as a matter of time before it hit Syria. And, and, and clearly it now has. We don't know to the scale yet. Um, but the Syrian government has taken some steps which seem to at least implicitly target Iranians. The Syrian Ministry of Interior imposed a total quarantine on uh, the Damascus suburb of Sayyid Zainab, uh, which is in the uh, at, at suburb of, of Damascus where there's a shrine which is holy to Shia, but it's also an area which is known to be where a lot of Iranians live. Um, that's now on complete lockdown. So there are signs, but it's not yet sort of out in the open that, that there are these governments are specifically saying kind of stay away from Iranians. And as Will points out, I think it's important, we had a whole series of protest movements in the region before the coronavirus outbreak. We could well see a resurgence, which could partly be directed at internal politics and internal resentment and internal frustration with the economic costs of COVID-19, external frustration with the Iranians, which certainly was an element in Iraqi and Lebanese protests. I mean, this could create a perfect storm if you take what had already been widespread frustration with the Iranian regional role, combine it with economic discontent, combine it with hostility to governments that haven't been able to perform. And we could find ourselves at some point when the pressure lets up with a very, very difficult to manage domestic protest environment where the Iranians are the most obvious uh, target. But we don't see signs of that yet. And if we think as well that Iran um, might be in a more difficult position economically to be able to respond to these. I mean, its, it's economy contracted, I think, almost 10 percent in last year. Um, it's sure to have been hit. I mean, all economies across the world will be hit this year, especially so. But but as the U.S. is talking about even more sanctions um, on Iran during this time as well, the economic situation in Iran is going to be absolutely dire. Combined with, with low oil prices. Exactly. So will Iran be able to fund the response to this discontentment? That's, a, that's going to be a big challenge. Although Iran is the master of doing things that are quick, dirty, and cheap. If you want to support hacking, if you want to support disinformation campaigns, you want to support small insurgent groups that sow confusion, that throw governments off their stride. I think the Iranians are very effective at doing things that are affordable, regardless of how much money the Iranian government has. What they're not good at doing is driving toward specific positive outcomes, but they're very good at obstructing others from achieving their explicit positive outcomes. And I think over the next year, we're likely to see more of that from the Iranians. Thank you both so much for joining me on this week's episode of Babel. Tune in next Tuesday for a meze on the difficulties of delivering mail in the Middle East. Thank you, McKinley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.